Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. In season 11 of the podcast, we are exploring resilience, failure and forgiveness, leadership, belonging, and a variety of other topics that when done properly will help us perform our best. Our guest today is Brad Deitzer. Brad is an entrepreneur and author of the new book, Belonging Rules. As we know, it's nearly impossible for people to perform their best when they feel like they don't belong on their team or in their organization. Brad talks about the five belonging rules he shares in his book, and throughout the conversation, we dive deep into one rule in particular, listening without labels. We also talk about how these rules can be used outside of work to address our political division, fight gang recruitment, and help marginalized children in our schools. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Brad, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Let's start out with a question. Very simple. What is belonging? I think about belonging as, and, and kind of the longer definition for it is, where we hold space for something of, of, of shared importance. Number one, it's a space where we hold something for, of shared importance. It's where we come together on shared values, purpose, identity. It's a sense of acceptance. I think this is really an important part of it. It's a sense of acceptance where agreement is not required but a shared framework for, uh, is, is, is understood, you know, where there is an invitation. We invite, that's part of the leadership of belonging. We invite people into the space and it's an intentional, it's, it, it's a choice to be part of it. And it's something that to me is vital to the sense of community, security, and, and the idea of acceptance. I want to talk about how belonging is created, but before we get there, talk about why it's important what do organizations achieve if they create this sense of belonging at the team level, at the organizational level? Nine out of 10 employees value belonging as either a value it or extremely value it. What we also know, and this is a really interesting shift. It's an interesting shift in, in organizations. And, and that is, we've always thought about a hierarchy of Strategy is what people are looking at and culture. And there's a conversation whether culture is over strategy or strategy is over culture. But what's clear today and what our research shows is it doesn't really matter which is on top of each other because what's on top of both of them is the idea of belonging. And what we've learned is it's so important that employees are willing to forego salary $10,000, $15,000, and it depends on the study, it depends on the kind of organization, to be part of an organization that values belonging and that creates these spaces where they're invited in. And so it's really a very big shift in, in, in organizations to go, okay, it is important, number one, nine out of 10. Number two, it's so important that it trumps strategy and culture. And number three, I'm willing to take less money to be part of an organization or a team. And the final piece of it is, is that organizations that have high belonging 
there's a direct correlation to performance. We work with a number of sports teams, sports organizations, collegiate and professional. That sense of belonging drives performance. What we know in organizations is there's a direct linkage to belonging, retention of people in an organization, and their ability to, to, to create something bigger than what they have. So it's incredibly powerful and it's a, it's, it's a change. What I found interesting in your research and what you said in the book is that belonging is actually a retention tool as well. It may not be necessarily a motivator, but it's a retention tool. Like you said, people will choose belonging over a higher salary. And I think that is really, really fascinating and really, really important for leaders to understand. It's, it's, I, I, I'm grateful that's, that, that's something you picked out of it because while belonging is doing the right thing for people, while being a belonging leader, a human-centric leader is doing right for people, more than that in some way, it's about your bottom line. It's about doing right for your organization so we know it drives performance. We know that people are more likely to join your organization because of the construct, the cultural construct, or however you want to think about it, that is belonging. And exactly what you said, your people are more likely to stay with you, even if you do less in other areas, because they're part of something bigger. They've been invited in that space, and their unique differences are embraced and appreciated. So the business case for belonging is interestingly as powerful as the human case for belonging. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating too. Let's talk about that just for a moment because belonging is, we're talking a lot about it in business now, but belonging has always mattered it's for thousands and thousands of years. If you didn't belong in your tribe, you're kicked out, it's over. And so there's this primal need for us to belong, right? It's why one of the interviews in our book is with, with Dr. David Eagleman, and who's a Stanford researcher and, and a brilliant thinker and host of the brain. And, and he talks about like just the way the brain is wired. This is, a, this is an innate need that we have. And we're, this, this need is magnified because we live in a time of, of, of such immense isolation. There's an epidemic that is happening of loneliness. And so people are searching for ways to connect. And I, and I, will, I would argue that so much of social media is about connecting but it's not necessarily about belonging. And so it's, a, it's an exacerbating this, 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 you know, this, this epidemic of loneliness. And so it's why we are encouraging organizations, why we encourage teams to create this focus to say it's not just about that human connection, but it's about the space. Well, let's talk about that. When is belonging created and when should it be created? So in the hiring process, in the recruiting process, and by whom or who is responsible for creating this sense of belonging? I believe that every individual is a leader. 
So I want to start with that premise that we are born to lead. Now, we may be born to lead one, two, or many. So starting with the premise is where does that, where does the onus lie on how we create belonging? I think it belongs in each of us. Human-centric leaders build an identity with shared values that say, hey, this is the construct of what it means to belong here, and we want to invite you in. So to your question of when does it belong, I think it belo- I, when, does it, when does belonging happen? It's at the very beginning, and I think it's a continuous process that happens day after day, week after week, and it's not something that once we belong, we stay. It's an active process that we're, we're constantly navigating kind of outside challenges and internal, internal issues with our own brain saying, ooh, I, I don't know if I fit today. Well, we all have our insecurities. Or we all infer that something around us has changed when maybe or maybe it has not. So it's an everyday activity to foster that sense of belonging to make sure that we, we create those spaces. And I think in some way, to ensure that we're extending an invitation. I think that we leave people unintentionally on the outside, not because we're excluding them, because we don't think about the fact that they may need that invitation. So how do you overcome these power structures? Is this where the belonging rules come in? Yes, there, 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 there are five belonging rules, and rule one is it's 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 the the first rule deals with power structures. It's the whole idea is turning into the power. Rule two is listening without labels. Rule three is choosing identity over purpose. Rule four is demand one hundred percent of the truth, and rule five is challenge everything. So if you start and they're created in somewhat of a in, in, of an order. There are structures that exist in our organizations, in our lives, on our teams, in our communities. Take this outside of the workplace. There are structures that exist that inhibit our ability to create those connections. And when we simply say, there's something in my pathway, let me go around it either way, what are we saying? We're acknowledging that that structure may be there, but we're creating a temporary solution. When we go around the structure, it's something, and, 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 and look no further than, and than a lot of the work in DEI, in organizations, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Organizations are, are, are not necessarily willing to have the hard diversity conversation and instead, let me hire a lower level position. Let me give them whatever title I want, but not empower them. That's circumventing it. We're not affecting real change, real systemic change. So we encourage people to begin to look at the structures. And sometimes they're not as obvious as you think. Sometimes it can be a minority view on something. We have a couple people in the organization but that's where the power may lie that's creating the structure that's not allowing us to create that belonging. And so that's where that, that, that comes into play. One of the interesting parts of the book is around listening without labels and 
the chapter is called Who is White? So it's comma, who is white, comma. And when I read that label or that that title of the chapter, I was thinking, well, there should be a question mark here, but it's not. It's 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 a, an identification or it's a label that's put on you. And I wonder if you could share that story because I think it's really powerful. And then I have a follow-up question to that labeling. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. And I I I love I love all the stories, but that one in so many ways is the is the reason I wrote the book, Who is White? I was working for a university. I was brought in to deal with a very complex issue post-George Floyd. And I I learned more in that in that project than just about any time in my life. The sides were so deeply divided. The misinformation was incredible. I thought I had a perspective going in. And what I learned very quickly is I also thought I had the answer for the problem. But what happened is on my first day on the job, I realized I listened to eight people I interviewed. The next day I listened to eight more and I thought I only needed 16, 20, 30 interviews. And 3,500 interviews later, I realized that it was okay for people to have different points of view. They just wanted to be heard. And too often, we don't take the time to hear people. So we push them in the corner and say, label them and go, well, those people. Politics is easy. You're either on this side or this side, or maybe you're in here, but you have to fit within a certain narrow label. And so in this case, I learned that no, it's human beings that want to be heard, that have a perspective. And sometimes when they share that, even if they disagree, it's the fact that they've been respected and heard that's important. So we went through this process and the the as as the story went on we listened we we listened we understood as part of this process that the pathway forward was to share research to tell the story in facts with not telling without telling anyone what to believe you have this is right this is wrong but simply to trust people and say i'm going to give you all the information the real information Do with it what you want to do. If you still disagree, you have the information to do it. If you agree, great, you have the information to be be empowered. What happened is shortly after we arrived at the solution, there was a newspaper article. Well, before the newspaper article, there was an article written right after we released this report. And my partner in this is Black. And that's an easy label. But what the real story is, this is one of the most thoughtful human beings I've ever met, one of the deepest thinkers, one of the greatest scholars, researchers, and teachers that I know. But in the first article that was written, it had his name, comma, who is black, comma. And it then proceeded with the story. Well, why did they do that? They were trying to put him in a box that because of the color of his skin or some defining characteristic to them, they it will help the reader understand all the things that came after. And he explained to me, he said, you know, Brad, 
it really hurts me. I wasn't chosen because of the color of my skin. I was chosen because of my scholarly research. I was chosen because of my openness to have debates, to challenge, to be willing. And I said, you know, let me help you. Let me go to the reporter and let me change it. And he said, I don't want your help. Fast forward a couple months and another story comes up. Many stories have been written in, in, in between, but someone decided to make me the story. And in this case, they said, Brad Deitzer, comma, who is white, comma, is hired to deal with diversity, equity, inclusion, on and on and on and on. I read the article and I was devastated. And candidly, I was in tears. And friends around me looked at me and they said, that was a great article. You're, you're in, what a great article. Look what you're doing. I was like, but you didn't read the article. And I said, do you understand how hurtful it is that Brad Deitzer, comma, who is white, comma, I've worked my entire career to be in the most challenging environments. And now I've been pulled outside of that environment because of the color of my skin. They're like, but you are white. But it's irrelevant to the story. It's exactly, it diminishes your, it diverts the attention of the reader to your race and not your credentials, not the methodology that was so frustrating to me. And, and the reason why you wanted to tell that story is because I, I had this epiphany as I was reading it and I watched the news. And when you see a political interview, almost always you see a D or an R by the person who's being interviewed, his name, you know, Democrat from New Jersey, uh, Republican from Florida, whatever. And I, who I try to be non-biased, I try to be open-minded, it filters or it provides a bias on how I perceive their message. And that I just find that that is so wrong because most of us are just looking to see, is that person on my team or on the other team? That's how I'm going to determine whether I like what they're saying or not. Isn't it amazing? But, but you're not alone. I think we all do it. And, and, the, and the sad part about it is, the sad part about that is when the R or the D or the I are not next to the name, we freak out. Well, I wonder which side, I wonder, do I, should I give them credence? Am I open enough to let them like, wait, hold on. Do I listen to what they have to say? Because, and that's part of it at the end of the, the day, what we talk about, listen without label. If we shut our eyes and don't worry what someone looks like or what their title is, they're the president, they're the director, they're the, they're the receptionist. Why does any of that matter? But I think this is one of the reasons why we have polarized is because we have cut off any ability to kind of just listen to the message and not evaluate based on a letter. It's silly. And I really would love to see the media change that practice. Even it's irrelevant to me what state they're from, unless it's about that district or that state. 
It's really interesting. I've never thought about that. I, I, I actually think that you're onto something really big there. So the media is supposed to simply report. And look, there's the media on either extreme that are, that are going to tell only their stories. And we know it. And so that, that is that. But media, when it's at its best, is simply sharing information. Doesn't matter this perspective or that. I'm giving you both. And it's what we try to do with our business. I just want to give you, I want to trust you. And I trust people. So we talked about the middle. The movable middle is this giant, it's, a, it's the majority of people out there that just want information. And what happens if people, if the media does what you said and say, you know what? I'm just going to put the name. I'm not going to put a letter by them. And I'm going to let you listen and discern what sounds right or wrong to you. And what happens is my bet, and I think we might be on the same page on this, is we're probably going to get to a place where people begin to think more. We don't have to be right. We don't have to be wrong. But we can kind of get to that place where it's like, you know what? I wonder what I think on that, as opposed to it's this, so therefore I must think this way, even if my inclination is, mm, it's a little bit off. What are leaders getting wrong about belonging? Leaders are viewing belonging as soft, as touchy, as feely. They're viewing it as a nice to have. Leaders are, 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 are thinking that it's sometimes political. I can, I can do belonging instead of DEI. I can, I can do belonging. I can say belonging instead of inclusion. And I think that's wrong. And so where leaders are getting it right is where they understand that there is a financial output. There is a, there is a real business reason for this. It's, it's, it's human, but it's business. And so again, we can do the right thing for people and your bottom line will improve. You can do the right thing for people and they will stay with you. You can do the right thing for people and they will perform higher for you. So what they're getting wrong is they're not understanding that they're, they're, they're putting it as an extra where we the research clearly shows that it sits above. And if we elevate belonging in an organization above everything and say we are genuinely trying to create spaces, we live in a society where we're, we, we're all different. We're going to have different views. We don't have one view. Creating those spaces where difference is okay, but that shared framework, when we do that, we're inviting the best of people in. How can we use what you know about belonging and apply it to addressing division in our country, polarization, school shootings? Because we know a lot of the people who are perpetrators of school shootings feel alone or feel a lack of belonging. How can we address gangs and, and kids entering gangs? I feel like this, what you have written about, can be applied much more broadly in our society. And I wonder if you could comment on that. I, I love that that's something you picked up in it. One of the, one of the earliest stories in the book is, 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 is about the Boys and Girls Club in Jackson, Mississippi. 
it's an organization that I, I I got to I got to meet the leader, the then leader of the organization. And I was struck when we were talking not about belonging, but she was very, very specific. And she said, we need X number of dollars and X number of cents per child that we bring into our organization. And I said, I thought to myself, this is really odd. Why do you need that much money? And why are you so specific? She says, well, we're so specific because we have a duty to our donors to be that specific. And we need that much money because of the competition. So I immediately had to have the right answer. And I said, oh, you're competing with United Way. You're competing with other organizations. And she said, no, we all have our place. We're competing with gangs. And I thought to myself, wow, this is a really important moment. Boys and girls clubs are competing with gangs. And she said, we're each offering the same thing. You have to understand, we're offering the same thing. Yes, we're offering experiences. Yes, we're offering meals. Yes, we're offering uh, mentorship. Yes, we're offering all these different things. She says, at the end of the day, you have a choice. You're going to belong to a gang or you're going to belong to us, with us. And it was kind of that aha moment when you do your research and you do your work to go, I really wasn't including this. I really wasn't including this. You know, this wasn't really kind of the direction I was going with the story. And I, I was here for a different reason. And it becomes one of those moments that says belonging is, is much, much bigger than organizations. Yes, the metrics at the organizations are undeniable. Unquestionable, it's a, it is a good business decision. But it's a societal decision. And we each have a responsibility to think about starting in our own families, starting in our own communities. Who are we leaving out? Who is right there on the other side of the fence that we have a chance to bring, bring over to? And so the rules are, 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 are designed to help us think about that. If we each committed, and you just want to take one rule at a time, and you take the rule of listening without labels, it's hard. We are so conditioned to go them, us, you know, they, who, whomever. We're all different. We're looking for divisions. But if we try to do a challenge, a one-week challenge, and say, you know what? This week, I'm going to challenge myself to listen without labels. I'm going to, every single day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really focused on not having to have the answer, not going into a conversation with me versus them, me having to be right, you know, me knowing what they're going to say just because of whatever it is. And putting some of the basic tools in place, see how many people we begin to bring inside our world. See how that begins to create an invitation. I didn't know, Brad, that you were interested in that. Thank you for listening to me.
Those kind of things are the change that we need in society. And I'd love to tell you that there's, that there's going to be a leader that we're going to elect or hire or do whatever that's going to say, here we are, let's all come together. And it will be great if it is. But I believe that the onus of belonging is on each of us as leaders, leaders of ourselves, to begin that invitation one person at a time, bringing them in one group at a time and going out of our way, sometimes being uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I wish that you were teaching this to grade schoolers, because I think foundationally, if we started there, our society could be completely transformed in a, in a generation. I, I'm a complete, I completely believe that. You know, it's, 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 it's funny. I, I, I had a project that I'm working on and I have a major initiative at a university about how do we eliminate hazing? How do we create belonging and, and this sense of belonging in organizations? And we're going to change the, we're going to change the dynamic. We are, we are winning. We are, we are, we are at the early stage, but we are winning in that. And I was asked, I said, you know, you spent three hours with these these the other night, these young men on talking about this, is that really the best use of your time? And I was like, I can't imagine anything better than talking with the next generation because in so many ways, they are smarter and they are so more, much more open to the change that's needed to bring people together. So I love it. And what you said, I've always, I one of the, one of our next projects is how do we take belonging rules and make it for young adults? How do we take belonging rules and make it for kindergartners and begin to take the rules in an age appropriate way to have those conversations? The power of belonging rules is number one, that they work, but number two, they're things that each of us in our everyday lives can embrace as a whole, as a system, or just one by one? As you said at the very beginning of this conversation, we are all leaders. And I would hope that once somebody is included and gets the sense of belonging, has that picket fence gate open up for them, they turn around and look for somebody behind them and pull them in as well. I think if we have that responsibility, then so many more of us will be able to flourish, not only in our work, but in our society. I love it. And, and, and to your point, if, if, if every day or every week we simply invited one person in, if we reached out our hand and held out our hand to someone we don't know, someone who may be marginalized, someone who may just be different than us, or someone who may, we may think looks like us and thinks like us and reach our hand out and just have those, have those conversations just to get to know and open our world. If each of us did that, and every single day, think about how much more enriched our lives would be as individuals, how much more knowledge we gain, how much more happiness because we have new perspectives. And think about what it does from a societal perspective. It's huge. I love it. Brad, thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. 
We will return next week when I interview author, entrepreneur, and four-time USA national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast, Lisa Carmen Wang. Lisa and I explore the drive and discipline that helped her become a world-class gymnast and how her experiences as an athlete helped her succeed when her competitive athletic career ended. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.